Thanks be to God for that word and for all of the words that we're about to share together. Uh, once again, I'm Hannah. So glad that you're here. And if you would please pray with me. God, who remembers us and who asks us to remember you, God, who does things as well as listens, as well as invites us to listen, help us to know you in this moment and in all moments. Help us to be so powerfully loved and led by you that our thoughts and our prayers would not only be directed towards you, but directed by you to change us and to change the world. Help us to be people who are quick to listen, slow to hate, quick to pray, and quick to allow prayer to change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All Lent, we're in this sermon series on prayer. We've been talking about prayer for weeks, and we will be talking about prayer for a few more. There is so much to say and to feel and to consider about a life of prayer. We could probably do this forever. But we would be remiss, I think, if we didn't address thoughts and prayers while we think about prayer. If we didn't address the way in which in our moment, in our time, in the culture that we share, um, thoughts and prayers have become a sort of code, <laughs> a sort of uh, shortcut <clears throat> to rage in our community over how we have and have not responded to the epidemic of gun violence across our nation. Uh, gun violence happens every day in our country. It happens every day in this city. It hurts people. It takes lives. It hurts all of us. But there is a pattern that I'm sure you've noticed, uh, I know that I have noticed, about any um, shooting or mass shooting that becomes particularly elevated in the public eye. And that is this, that as soon as it happens, there will be several politicians and maybe non-politicians who say, my thoughts and prayers are with the victims. And then there's a wave of folks who are enraged at that very idea, because it seems like thoughts and prayers have been offered so many times, and nothing has happened. They feel like thoughts and prayers have become, rather than an action or a gift, an excuse for avoiding something more. We experienced this recently after the um, massacre at the high school in Parkland, but I want to read a couple of quotes from this cycle that we have all experienced together. Um, after the shooting in the church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, uh, a senator immediately responded, thoughts and prayers are not enough. A governor of New York, we have pastors, priests, and rabbis to offer thoughts and prayers. I will say I don't think it's just the job of pastors, priests, and rabbis to offer thoughts and prayers. From a representative in Washington, they were praying when it happened. They don't need our prayers. They need us to address gun violence and pass sensible legislation. Um, and these are the more measured of responses, I think, to people's thoughts and prayers. I know I have many friends and people in my life who um, are done hearing about prayer at all. <laughs> They've come to be so mistrustful of the way that people use their public affirmation of prayer um, that they don't get the sense that people are saying they're praying for other people out of um, love or compassion or a desire for things to be different, 
but that they're saying that they're praying for people out of um, a kind of excuse to do nothing more than pray, right? That prayer has become the last thing we do, the reason not to do anything else, rather than the beginning of a much larger journey into what God might be asking of us. And I'll say I think... Um, there's fault in all aspects of the conversation here, although I understand the rage. <laughs> the problem isn't actually the prayer, right? The problem isn't praying for people. The problem is, is prayer the end of our conversation with God about who we are called to be, or is prayer the beginning? Is prayer the end of our conversation with God about what we do next, about what happens, about how we are in the world, or is it the beginning? I think there's a lot of reasons that our community and our world have come to mistrust the idea of prayer. But that doesn't mean that we have to. And that doesn't mean that we have to capitulate or accept this reduced, this shadow, this um, minimized version of what it means to pray for people and the world. There are much greater things at work that we can embrace. And so that's what we're gonna talk about today. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, she really likes her answers. She'll be a persistent prayer. Um, so one of the good news uh, things about this, about this question that is before us of what does prayer actually do, of what is it for, of how should it be in our life, is that we're not the first people to have this argument. <laughs> this is actually one of the most ancient arguments about prayer, is what does it do and when does it stop and does it change us or not? Um, it's one of the reasons that the book that we read from today, the book of James, the letter of James to the people, is one of the more controversial books in the New Testament. Um, if you look back at all of the ways that James has been talked about, uh, there's a whole set of Christian theologians and leaders who've always been sort of suspicious about James' inc James's inclusion in the Bible. They're not a big fan of the letter. Um, if you go back to the, the very earliest list we have from a Christian source of what should be um, added to the scriptures, uh, it's called the Muratorian Fragment. It's from 170 AD. It doesn't include James at all. James started to get included later. Um, and there are several folks throughout Christian history who express their suspicion about this text. Uh, most famously, Martin Luther, who uh, in his introduction to it called it the epistle of straw. He was really, Martin Luther was very aggressive, called a lot of people goats, you know, he was just like very angry in all of his writings, um, but particularly dismissed the book of James because he felt like what we hear from James here about being, um, doers of the word and not hearers only, right? Doers of the word and not hearers only was potentially a dangerous distraction from the life of faith. That it might convince us that what Jesus needs from us is a checklist of actions, a list of good works, instead of the faith um, that could come from each one of us. That it might put the, our judgment into the hands of humans rather than into the hands of God. But that's just not what I see <laughs> when I read this scripture. That's just not what I feel when I allow the scripture to change me and to change my life. What I find in James is a deep and ongoing and a loving and an intimate sense that faith is real because it changes us, because it does stuff, because it makes things happen. Let's bring the James back up. Um, nobody knows for sure because of you know history and things being lost to time, but 
part of our tradition holds that James uh, is potentially the brother of Jesus, one of the kids that Mary and Joseph had after Jesus was born. Um, and I think it's no accident that this book that talks so vividly about sort of the practical life of faith, not just the theology, not just the things that we say, not just the things that we believe, but what are we going to do? How are we going to live? How is our life going to be different? Um, is from someone who had that level of intimacy with Jesus, right? Someone who didn't just know Jesus as a 31-year-old miracle worker who was a part of God on earth, but someone who knew Jesus when he was two and four and six and maybe fought with him in the mud or uh, played tricks on mom with him or said, dad, Jesus is doing this again, right? Like, Jesus, stop touching me. Um, that, that, that James, the one who had that kind of intimacy with Jesus, is the one who sees how we live as an important question about what prayer does and about what the scriptures is, I think is no accident. Um, he's not distracted by his awe of who Jesus is, of who God is. He is deeply involved in what would it mean to live a life like Jesus asked us to live. And when he asks that question, he comes to this. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Um, and I'll say I have experienced anger actually as being a, it can be a quite powerful force. The anger that alerts us to um, the fact that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. I often think of anger as one of those emotions, anger and guilt. It's like um, how when you touch the hot stove, it's painful, but that's useful, right? Because then you move your hand. <laughs> anger is useful because it alerts us to injustice in the world. It alerts us to unfairness. Um, but if we can only live in our anger, we often can never do anything about the things that make us angry, right? Um, and if our anger is captivated in individuals, it can eat us up inside. That's one of the things it has the potential to do. That we want to rid ourselves of sordidness and welcome meekness and calmness and be planted in the word and be doers of the word and not hearers who deceive themselves. James has the strong sense that if you are only saying the words, saying the words of the prayer, saying the words of the Bible, if you're only um, listening to the sermon on Sunday, but then you're not doing anything Monday through Saturday, you might as well have no faith at all. Because <laughs> what's the point, right? What is it if it's only words? Words should change us. I think this is particularly true for us who live in a culture where we are surrounded by words and commentary all the time, right? We will never run out of the river of words that is the culture we walk into. But what are those words doing? What are those words doing to us? This bit about the mirror, I realized when I read this, I think about um, first century uh, uh, Middle East a lot uh, because I think about Jesus a lot, but there's, I'm not an expert, so there's lots that I don't know. And I realized when I read this sentence, I was like, are, were mirrors a thing? Like, how, like, did people have mirrors? Was it just lakes and rivers? So I looked it up, did have mirrors, mostly hammered out metal, right? Not the same reflective materials that we have today, but did have mirrors. Any who are hearers of the word and not doers are like those who look at themselves in a mirror, for they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they were like. I find this sentence uh, fascinating, but initially confusing, because that's not at all my experience of looking in the mirror, right? Do you look in the mirror and then go away and you're like, oh, what do I look like again, right? Like, what's the color of my hair? What's the, you know, I, I, that's not my experience of looking in the mirror. And so I sat and I thought with it for a long time and I kind of prayed with it for a long time. 
Um, and I think what, what he means is not that mirrors um, are these deceitful beings because we look in them, right? We see the spinach in our teeth and then we turn away and we sort of forget, oh, there was spinach in my teeth, I need to remove it. Many of us become obsessed with our image when we see it in a mirror, right? I need to, oh, what are the parts I don't like? What are the parts I do like? It's that what a mirror does is make you remember all of the wrong things about yourself. What a mirror does is distract you with the image of things, with how things look. And what you forget when you turn away is the substance of things, the essence of things, how things are. That when you look in a mirror, you may turn away and remember what your hair color is or whether you're having a good hair day. You may remember what your shirt looked like or you may remember whether your chin was too small or too big or whatever your particular insecurity is, right? When you look in the mirror, you, rem you may remember that stuff, but that is not actually the stuff that God wants us to remember about who we are. What we, what we forget when we look in the mirror and turn away is all of the stuff that's most essential about who we are as human beings, which is children of God who are called to be and do things in the world. <laughs> what the mirror does is distract us with how things look so that we forget about how things are. And that's the same thing that happens when we become so convicted about being hearers and displayers of the word that we forget about actually doing it right? When we immediately say, oh, I'll pray for that, or oh, I'll pray for you, because we know that that's the right thing to do, and that's the automatic thing to do, and that's kind of what you say when somebody's going through a thing, but we forget about the essence of what it means to pray for someone or to pray with someone, which is that we are inviting a wild and strange and extraordinary God into our lives who might ask something of us from that prayer, when we are hearers of the word and not doers, it's when we read a little bit of scripture because we know that that's what you're supposed to do each day, right? Or each week or each month, sort of depending on our particular <laughs> devotional life, that you're kind of supposed to do these things, supposed to read these words, but you don't allow yourself to see yourself in them and to say, this might change me. This might ask something of me. This might ask something of the world. This might be extraordinary, where we just kind of do it. We become distracted by the image of things so much that we can no longer see what they actually are. So that we can no longer be and live what they actually are. And that's what James is worried about. He's not worried about us not having enough good deeds on our list. He's worried about us reducing our faith to something so little, to something so powerless and perfunctory and base that it isn't really faith at all. It's just a picture, an image of what other people think faith looks like. Faith should change us if it's in the kind of God that we say it is about. I was sharing uh, early on when my husband and I were dating, uh, now like a million years ago, um, I knew that I was called to ministry. I knew that I was called to be a pastor, but I didn't know exactly what that meant yet. Um, and he was not religious and didn't particularly believe in God. And so I felt this like great sense of responsibility before we got super serious to really bring home to him what that might mean for his life um, and like really what he was getting into, right? And so I, I remember I would get um, nervous and anxious and frustrated and, and I had this strong sense that God could ask a lot of you at any moment and that prayer might change your life. 
And so I would say to him, no, you don't understand. Like, if you marry me, I could at any point be praying, and God could say, move to Tanzania, and I would feel like I would have to do it whether or not you wanted to. Like, are you up for that? Like, are you okay with that? Um, and of, and I would be very sort of head up, and that's this is in my nature. And Matt, who's a much sort of calmer person than I am, um, would say, smartly, right? but you think that God loves you, right? Because <laughs> uh, he didn't particularly believe in God at that moment, but he knew what I had said. He knew what I had said I believed. And I would say, well, yeah. <laughs> and you think that God loves us, right? And I was like, yeah. And so he's like, well, then if God asked you to like get a new job or move somewhere or do something unusual, then it would probably be good for us, right? And I'd be like, fine, trust God more than me, whatever. <laughs> I don't, you know, like, get out of here. Um, and... Uh, but I remember what was good about that, right, as sort of unreasonable as I was about the consequences. What was good about that was my overwhelming conviction, because I had experienced it in my prayer life, that prayer might change things. <laughs> you might be asked to do stuff when you pray. You might be asked to change who you are. You might be asked to change how you live. And it could happen at any moment. And praying should be sort of a, like, scary thing. Not so scary that you don't do it, but that you should bring a little bit of, oh, Something could happen here. <laughs> something great, something wonderful, something good, something new, a burning bush, a dove alighting. Something can happen here when we pray. And that's why I think the problem <laughs> uh, with thoughts and prayers isn't the thoughts and prayers. It's that they are prayers that are being made by people who have decided already that the prayer won't change anything. It's that the prayers are being made by people who have decided already that prayer is not powerful because all that prayer does is happen. Whereas I believe that prayer is powerful. Prayer might change us. Prayer might ask us to be changed. Prayer might do stuff. Um, the first time I ever went to a protest, I had not been to one before and I was scared and I prayed. And it was prayer, in part, that lifted me and changed me and got me out there, right, to do something new that I had not done before. You may have heard this story, but um, there's this incredible picture of the Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel linked in arms with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and several other activists at Selma on Bloody Sunday um, when they were taking on enormous risk to say that the world should be different than it is. Our laws should be different than they are. Um, and putting their physical lives in danger. And every time he talked about that day, he would say that on that day, it was as if his legs were praying, right? That prayer moves us and changes us and makes things different and new. There are in our tradition uh, expert prayers, people who are have spent more time praying than anybody else, the monks and the, the folks who are called to these contemplative lives of prayer. And I often look to them when I'm trying to understand something new about prayer. And I often look to the desert fathers, who were folks who early in the Christian community ran away to the desert to pray. And here are a couple quotes from them that I don't necessarily agree with, but I think are provocative. So here's the first one. The brothers asked Abba Agathon, um, among all good works which is the virtue that requires the greatest effort? So right, they're thinking about good works early on. How does, how does that work? Which is the one that's the most challenging? I like to think that some of the, the, the kind of 
younger, uh, newer monks are like, which is like, how can I prove that I'm the most, right? Like put the most effort into my God love. He answered, forgive me, but I think that there is no greater labor than that of prayer to God. For every time a person wants to pray, one's enemies, the demons, want to prevent one from praying. For they know that it is only by turning away from prayer that they can hinder one's journey. Whatever good works a person undertakes, if one perseveres in them, one will attain rest. If you garden, there will be a garden. If you act, there will be an action. But prayer is warfare to the last breath. This is one of the very few things I've read that um, gets at how hard I find it to pray, <laughs> how difficult and how distracting. Um, and I think that Abba Agathon knows, he knows how hard it is to pray because prayer isn't just words. It isn't just something that we do. It isn't just a time that we listen. It's something that might transform us. And it's something that we are constantly being distracted away from. It's a big deal, but a big, good, worth it deal. There's another that I um, disagree with even more, but also find even more helpful to think about from Abba Isaac, who eventually became a bishop. Um, so maybe he managed to do this. No one can offer prayer of a proper intensity and sincerity unless they are seeking to live in the following way. First of all, there must be no anxiety about the bodily needs. Not even the recollection of a piece of business, let alone to worry about it. Um, so I think, right, this suggests that even in the first and second century, like grocery lists coming up while you were praying was a thing, was a problem. <laughs> this is the ancient problem of prayer. There must be no distraction and no gossip. Above all, no anger or wrongful sorrow, for these cannot but disturb the spirit. No lust of the flesh, no love of money. Therefore, before we begin to pray, we ought to try to be the kind of people who we wish God would find while we pray. Whatever we do not want to creep into our time of prayer, we must try to keep out of the heart when we are not praying. So my problem with this is that I think it's impossible. <laughs> if we waited for this, we would never pray, and I don't think that that's what God is inviting us to. God is inviting us, as God is inviting us in all aspects of our lives, to be super messed up, weird freaks who like do God stuff anyway and who pray anyway, right? Um, we can't wait to not have distraction or not have gossip on our hearts before we pray. But what I think is so helpful about it is that he believes that prayer changes us because we want to become the kind of people who we wish God would find when we were praying. And in the praying, we are given greater capacity to become the kind of people that God wishes we would be. That there's a feedback loop between our prayer and our life. They aren't two separate bifurcated things. They're the same thing happening to us all the time, changing us all the time. And it's a gift to be that changed by the power of God. I have found this to be true in my own life. I don't know if you have, but I have found that when I pray consistently, it's rare that one time of prayer will change me, although that has happened. I've had times of prayer where in one prayer I asked for a thing or listened for a thing or was being distracted and God touched me anyway and something extraordinary happened. But more often, I have been changed by a sustained practice of prayer. We call it practice because you do it over and over again. <laughs> um, there was one time when I, I wanted to try uh, sort of a modified version of actually an ancient Buddhist prayer called the loving kindness meditation, the Mekta meditation, where you start with what's supposed to be most intimate and easiest and kind of extend outwards. So you'll say a prayer for yourself, 
And then you say a prayer for someone you really love. So like a family member, a friend, a partner, someone who you find it easy to care about. And then you say a prayer for somebody totally neutral, like the person who served you at a restaurant last night or a person who you saw on the street, someone who you like can think of what they look like, but you don't actually know anything about them. And then you pray for an enemy, someone who is in some way an antagonist in your life, whether that's uh, a person in your family or friend group with whom you have an enormous amount of attention, of tension and pain, or whether that's someone on the national or international scene that you find uh, frustrating and hurtful, or it's someone at work who keeps you know, messing with your business, like whoever it is, whoever it would be hard for you to love and hard for you to pray with, you end with them. And the idea is to sort of practice praying for people because you believe that everyone needs and deserves prayer and might be changed by the power of prayer, but also that in the act of praying for them, you will be changed <laughs> in how you feel about them and in how you see God's vision of who they are and of who you are. And I, after doing that day after day after day for weeks, absolutely found that to be true. <laughs> During the time I was praying that prayer, um, I became someone who was slower to anger. My fuse just got longer, right? I got less irritable both with other people, but then it turns out also with myself, right? My, my own self-hating language got less powerful because I was spending all this time practicing um, praying for people and loving them and trying to put myself in touch with how God felt about us. I was changed. I was changed by that prayer. <laughs> and that's one little way that I think we can all be changed by believing that prayer is not an end, but a beginning to a greater life with a God who transforms us and cares about us and sees more in the world than we could ever see. Prayer is powerful, and for that reason, it might be scary, but it's the good kind of scary that calls you into a greater world than you might have ever known. Thoughts and prayers are not a response, they are the first response to challenge and pain in our community that then leads us on into whole paths of life that we could not have anticipated without inviting prayer in first. This is what it means to pray in a way that we are doers of the word and not just hearers of it. That we believe the word is powerful, that it might, as the scripture says, plant itself in our soul and grow up tall. <laughs> that prayer is something that we are invited to because it is powerful and not because it is something that, they're, uh, that just other people want to see. I believe in the power of prayer for you, for me, for all, and so I want us to embrace it. Let's see what happens if we believe that prayer might change things in the weeks and months to come. And if we let our prayers be not the end, but the beginning of the longest journey we will ever take, the journey with God of becoming who we want to be and of being in a world that can be transformed into the kingdom. Amen? Amen. Amen.